Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this is the 63rd sermon in our sermon series on Luke's Gospel. And this evening we will study Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. That's page 873 in your pew Bible. Now we've seen in previous Sundays how the cross has loomed larger and larger in Jesus' thoughts. So he's paused to give a series of warnings of the consequences of his second coming to judge the earth, the consequences of those who receive him, those who reject him. Despite every exception from those who found this a hard teaching, Jesus becomes even more assertive. We saw it again last Sunday when an unnamed person in the crowd shouted out another exception. Surely, All Jews, except the very worst, would have a place in heaven. Now, Jesus doesn't answer. Instead, he commands, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many of you Jews will seek to enter and will not be able. The majority of his hearers would not find the narrow door. Our Savior was so concerned with complacency, because this thinking is absolutely fatal. He taught that the externals of your religion will make no difference at all if there is not the inward reorientation of mind and heart by the Holy Spirit. Jesus represented the way of salvation as the narrow door, the image is to suggest a degree of humility in the person's heart who would strive to enter the kingdom. And humility is a heart orientation. In other words, the passage to heaven is not through a great portal of a palace, but a narrow, low lintel door through which one must humbly bow in order to enter. You recalled how such a posture of humility is not natural to the unregenerate heart. It requires the spirit working through the word to accomplish it. Therefore, you and I must regularly perform our own spiritual health check. We cannot strive too much. This is Jesus' point. We must, be, we must seek it with all that we have. The word of God must be mined. Prayer must be perpetual. We must agonize over being sure to enter the kingdom of God, not because our Heavenly Father is somehow miserly in his grace, but because of the presence of sin that may still lure us away from that very same grace. Jesus here gives A call to respond because there is a time limit. The door will be shut. 
The scripture in its testimony by the patriarchs and prophets will become witnesses against us in our folly. But for those who receive him by faith as Lord and Savior, the narrowness of the door turns from a threat to a solace, a great comfort. Because the narrow way is spiritual, not fleshly. It is by faith, not by heredity. It's by God's grace, not by our earning. Therefore, there is hope. There is hope for all those who would turn to Christ. Well, Luke continues now in our study this evening with the simple phrase, at that very hour. In other words, at the same time as Jesus finishes teaching what we've just reviewed, the narrative follows immediately after. A group of Pharisees enter the crowd and come close. They appear to give him some friendly advice. Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. They sought to trap him. We saw in chapter 11, Jesus crying out, six woes on the Pharisees and the scribes had made them as a class his implacable enemies. He knew their hearts, didn't he? And we know from Luke's gospel how enemies of the Lord were in collusion with one another. We can speculate, therefore, how Herod had already been embarrassed by his murder of John the Baptist. So it would be to his advantage if a threat passed along by the Pharisees would would intimidate the Lord Jesus, would scare him to move south more rapidly away from his jurisdiction. And the Pharisees, well, they also would gain because our Savior would leave his natural support network in the region in which he was raised, in the region around Nazareth, journeying deeper and further toward the power base of the Pharisee and scribe in the assembly, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. But our Savior is not fooled for one moment. He must have shook his head at their childish schemes, pathetic really, and then turning to sorrow with love really for those who rejected him, he answers them. He answers Herod, the Pharisee, and by extension, all those who reject him. Let's consider then first his message to his enemies in verse 32. Go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Now notice, first of all, how Jesus calls Herod a fox. Although it's not mentioned in the list of unclean animals in the Old Testament, by the time of Jesus, the rabbis described the fox as a low animal, one of base cunning, only concerned with the belly, insignificant, a thief in the night. It's an expression of contempt. Indeed, Herod is the only person that Jesus is recorded to have treated with contempt. Later, as we shall see in Luke's Gospel, when, Herod, when Jesus stood before Herod, he remained silent. And his silence meant 
for King Herod that the narrow door was indeed shut. One commentator put it like this, when Jesus has nothing to say to a man, that man's position is hopeless. Herod is a dead man in every way. Now notice now what the Lord Jesus says next. We can paraphrase the rest of his answer to make it clear. I cast out demons and perform cures. In other words, I will continue to do my normal ministry. Today and tomorrow. And the third day I will finish my course. I will carry on my ministry for a short time longer. And then I will complete it. Luke records here how our Savior's earthly ministry, his bloody sacrificial death on the cross, and his resurrection victory over sin and death are all under God's sovereign hand. No authority on this earth, no authority of some local ruler with delusions of grandeur hiding his hatred of the Lord God Almighty will affect him in any way. This is a pattern our Savior repeats over and over again when confronted with those in authority. He says it again in John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my heavenly Father. You see, my dear friends, how in all of his ministry, and when he comes to questions of authority, it is always God himself and the providence of God, his workings in the way in which salvation has unfolded since the great promise made at the Garden of Eden to Eve that there would be one day a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And herein lies the determination our Savior has as he moves forward amongst those who would indeed think themselves in authority over him, an earthly authority. Having seen through Herod's heart and called him out for who he truly is in the sight of God, he turns now to the Pharisees with an even heavier doom. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now, we could miss what in a first hearing doesn't seem that severe, couldn't we? But what Jesus, in essence, is saying is this. Jerusalem has the monopoly on killing the prophets. And when the ultimate prophet enters its gates, the city will not be deprived of its chance to confirm the title. It would never do for a prophet to die outside the walls of the so-called city of peace. Notice how, once again, Jesus confirms the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. In the people's return from exile, after the time spent 70 years in Babylon, to rebuild a destroyed Jerusalem, its stones still cracked and blackened 
by the fires of the Babylonian armies. Among the ruins and in lament, there's a public act of repentance in sackcloth and ashes. Listen to how it begins. Nehemiah 9.26 We were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind our backs and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. You see how they confessed that their disobedience, their rebellion against God was made manifest in two ways, wasn't it? Tossing aside God's word that they had received and killing the bearers of God's word in the prophets. You can see now how Jesus uses once again his favorite argument to bring the focus on his coming work of redemption. It's like this. If God had destroyed the city of Jerusalem and his people when his prophets were murdered, How much more, therefore, would the judgment be when God's ultimate prophet were killed? You see, it's not a coincidence that the Apostle Peter, on the day of Pentecost, and when he heals the man who had been lame from birth at the temple gate, would make this point again and again. Here it is at the conclusion of his famous sermon on the day of Pentecost. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And what is their response? When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Brothers, what shall we do? Cut to the heart indeed. Three thousand came to Christ that day, 3,000 were saved. The biblical principle declared by the Lord Jesus and capped by Peter is simply this, that what sinful men intended for evil, God intended for your salvation. Not only may we draw comfort from this great truth, but we can see with fresh eyes how determined the Lord Jesus is to save you. It would be a cruel and unusual punishment today if a condemned man moved a foot closer to their execution day after day. But this was the experience of your Savior as he deliberately chose to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew he was the lamb who was to be sacrificed there. He was like an all-knowing Isaac who carried the wood of sacrifice and the knife on his back as he dutifully climbed the mountain with his father Abraham. He knew who the offering was to be. Jesus knew who the offering was to be. Our Savior is the hero of our souls, the terror of the cross. The flood of the wrath of God loomed larger every day, but his love drove him on. Yet notice 
how truly sympathetic to those who sought him by faith. He was tender to every need. According to his humanity, he tired each day in his ministry, all the time closer and closer to a terrible cosmic judgment. This, my dear believer, is your Savior. This is your God. This is your high priest. It is to our comfort to hear afresh what Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10 say. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. My dear friends, as our Savior prayed, can you imagine for a moment that in the knowledge of what he faced, he was praying for you and me? For all those whom God had chosen, for those whom he would call out of death into life, your Savior, as he trod toward Jerusalem, had you on his heart and his mind. All the sheep who had gone astray, each one his own way, and yet the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus has answered Herod, dismissed him in a moment. He's replied to the plotting Pharisees. But the mention of his death in Jerusalem has once again turned his heart to this city and the people who live there. And so he turns now to all those who reject him and his heart reaches out toward them in lament. He's expressing his longing for his people with the image of a mother bird brooding over her young in the nest. Now this is not some sentimentality of the hallmark quality. It would have sent chills up the neck of the Jewish crowd who heard him. Because it's here in verse 34 that your Savior is declaring that he is the Lord God himself. Listen to the words again. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. The emphasis here is unmistakable. He is God incarnate because what is said here is what God himself says to Moses on Sinai in his judgment upon Egypt and his loving protection of Israel in redemption. God says this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians 
And here it is. And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Exodus 19, verse 4. When the Lord's visitation and judgment through the angel of death passed over the land, you must imagine for a moment how our Heavenly Father spread his protective wings over the children of Israel. Then gather them up in the pinions, carrying them through the Red Sea, providing them water to drink and manna to eat, until they came to rest at Mount Sinai and the great covenant promises are made. This great image is found throughout the Old Testament. Scriptures, when Israel recalls their salvation, you find it again and again amongst the Psalms. Here are just a few examples. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. He will cover you with his pinions. Under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. My dear friends, consider for a moment the extent of our Savior's love for those who hate him. Tucked under the protection of God's secure wings, one finds sustenance, warmth, and safety. And that is precisely God's longing in Christ for his people. Like the old hymn says, I know you know this one, what a wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul. What a wondrous love is this, O my soul. What a wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. Can you sing that song, my dear friend? You know, there is a loneliness which comes with our fallenness. Relationships fail. Sin isolates us. We can all at one time or another feel as though I am in the universe all by myself. But when I consider what the word of God tells me, when I ponder the Lord Jesus, what he endured for me, his love for me, how now like a bird covering me, sheltering me, seeing to my needs, sheltered under his wings, the emptiness fades away. But sadly, many are not willing, are they? Too many are not willing. Because people refuse to turn to him, what does he say? The inevitable result, your house is forsaken. Your house is forsaken. How true these words became 
when just a short time after he spoke them, according to the eyewitnesses of the time, in the final weeks of the siege that saw Jerusalem fall to the Romans, there was descriptions of starving women crowding the rooftops of the doomed city with dying newborns in their arms, the alleys filling up with the dead of the old Young people staggered from starvation like silent ghosts and then collapsed and died. And there was silence because starvation had robbed them of their voices. They couldn't bury the dead, so the bodies were thrown over the wall. The silence then on the outside broken only by the laughter of the grave robber. Do you see what's happening here, my dear friends? It's once again the image of the lesser to the greater. If he would be rejected on that day, and Jerusalem, the house, is forsaken, how much more, therefore, will it end in the ultimate destruction, in judgment, on the last day, where we hear again and again there will be the wailing and gnashing of teeth. And what does our Savior say? You will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118. What is he saying to them? Turn to me. Come to me. Salvation comes for those who look for him. That is the text Psalm 118 is on about everything concerning your salvation and mine has to do and is dependent upon our Savior's determination to die in Jerusalem, to rise for us, to prepare a place for us, and to return and take us so that we might be with him always He could not be manipulated by Herod's threats. He could not be deceived by the plots of the Pharisees. Although it broke his heart to do it, he will continue his ministry. He will call for those to come to him. He is that shepherd of our souls, isn't he? He fully understood what lay ahead. And yet he faced it fully, determined to die for our sins. That determination, grounded in his total love for us, your heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit longed to pull you tenderly to himself under his wings. This is what he wants to do. My dear friend, if you have been tempted by sin and are far away in the weeds of despair right now, look back to your Savior Christ. Do not be unwilling, but rather seek your salvation in him. The gospel call goes out again and again and again as the word of God is preached. Your Savior has done it all. All to him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He has done it all. 
turn to him. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.